Again, as I said in Sunday school, if you weren't here, it's good to be back among you, brethren. It's good to see all the familiar faces and a few I don't know. That's very encouraging. Take your Bibles with me, if you will, this morning, and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This morning, and again this afternoon, you're going to hear the first two in a series of messages I've been doing in Grand Rapids on Hebrews chapter 11. I think we're up to number six. I think I'm getting ready to preach there in the series. So I thought it would be good and hopefully beneficial to at least start that here. So that's our plan today. But before we do that, let's again ask God to help us as we come to his word this morning to listen to it, for me to preach it, for his glory and for your benefit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again this morning for all your goodness and your love to us. Even as we sung this morning how you provide for us well beyond what we deserve. We ask now as we come this morning that you would bless us as your people, that you'd help us to come ready to hear your word, to set aside those things that would keep us from faithfully hearing it, the distractions of the past week, the thoughts of the coming week, other things we ask and pray, and help us to give our full devotion, our full energy, our minds and hearts and souls and strength to the hearing of your word, to the understanding of it, and to the faithfully of applying it to ourselves. Help me as I preach it, to preach it plainly, clearly, faithfully. Speak what you would have your people to hear through me. Today we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes we as God's people struggle with our faith. Sometimes we question such things even, is the word of God true? Is God real? Is Christ coming again? And is he really going to judge the wicked? Because they often seem to have the upper hand. We struggle with these thoughts and others. And sometimes these struggles can become very intense and very serious. And we come today, as I said, to Hebrews 11 to help us with some of those struggles. It's a very familiar portion of Scripture, but one that can be, and I believe is, an encouragement to us as God's people to continue in our faith. In this series, I've broken down into three parts as we're working our way through it, and that's the context of the passage, context of chapter 11 here in Hebrews, the content of the passage, what what does it have to say to us, and what are some things we can learn, conclusions from the passage. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the context to Hebrews 11. What brought the writer to write Hebrews 11? What was he thinking about? What was it that spurred him on in particular? And I think we have that in the previous eight verses to chapter 11. In Hebrews 10, 32 to 39. 
Hebrews 10, 32 to 39 reads from the Word of God, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. We find here in Hebrews chapter 10, as we do throughout the book of Hebrews, that the Hebrew Christians are struggling. They're having a difficult time. The writer, probably the Apostle Paul, way back in chapter 6, has warned them against apostatizing, against leaving the faith, and what the consequences of that would be. Earlier in this chapter, in the six verses preceding this, Paul tells them again and warns them against throwing, in, throwing away their faith and sinning willfully against God and the judgment that awaits those who do. Paul here wants to help God's people and encourage them to remain faithful to the Lord. So he endeavors to do so by initially helping them to remember something. <clears throat> and we're going to look this morning, as we look at the context of the passage, at a couple of things. First, we want to look at what the Apostle takes them to remember. He takes them back to their previous love. And he's, we're going to look at their sufferings, their response, and their hope. And then we're secondly going to look at their present life. Where are they now? In contrast to where they once were. So let's first of all look at the previous love. Where were the Hebrew Christians? Well, remember, after having been converted, <clears throat> Paul tells them, or enlightened, you endured persecution. There in verse 32, he tells them, you remember when you were first converted? You remember what happened to you? Do you remember how you endured a great conflict of sufferings? Do you remember all the things that came upon you? Do you remember how you responded to those things when they came upon you? So what did they do? What were their sufferings? There in verses 32 to 34. Well, the apostle tells us, as we read, that they experienced tribulations. 
being personally persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And he alludes here too, they're being made a public spectacle. They were probably physically beaten. They were probably publicly humiliated in various ways. He tells us that they lost their personal property. Probably everything they owned was taken away from them. And not only did they lose their personal property, but with that they lost their personal dignity. All for the sake of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he also tells us, not only did they lose all these things personally, but Scripture here tells us, at the end there, especially in verse 33, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. And then he explains what he means in verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accept the joy and excuse me, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. <clears throat> the Hebrew Christians went and visited those in prison. Now they visited those who had been in prison for the gospel. What did that do? Was that not a big thing, not a big deal, kind of okay? That was a nice thing? No. Because in doing that, what were they doing? They were putting their own lives at risk. Because if those who had put them in prison saw that these brethren were there trying to help them and fellowship with them, what do you think is going to happen to them? What's very likely to happen to them? That they themselves are going to end up in prison. Most likely. But they were willing to risk that. They were willing to take that on as a possibility so that they could go minister to their brethren who were in jail and who were persecuted. As a matter of fact, back in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, do you remember the, the whole parable when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats? And he separates the one on his right and his left. And he's talking about how those who are on his right, because they had given him something to drink, and they had given him clothes when he didn't have any, one of the things he lists there is, you visited me when I was in prison. That was one of the characteristics of God's people. And here these people were demonstrating that. They had suffered all these things for the sake of the gospel. Not only had they suffered them, but how had they responded to that suffering? Did they go around feeling sorry for themselves? <clears throat> Did they go around and say, oh, poor us. You know, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of having a hard time and feeling sorry for themselves? No, look what the, what the apostles say there as we go on in verse 34. Not only did they show sympathy to the prisoners, they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. Now, wait a minute. 
There must have been something wrong with these dear people. Who would accept joyfully somebody coming and taking all their personal belongings? Somebody must not have been quite right. Something a little wrong there? No. There's nothing wrong with them. Quite the opposite. They were a content and happy people. Why? Why were they so content? How can someone be joyful when you're treated that way? When you lose your property, when you're publicly humiliated, how can people be joyful? Well, part of that joy was a result of what they had their hope in. Part of that joy came because their hope wasn't in the things of this world. It wasn't in the nice house they had. Now, they didn't have a car parked outside, so we'll just say they had a nice horse cart parked out in the driveway. Okay? They didn't have a tractor, but they probably had some mules that took care and the cows that took care of the grass for them. Whatever they had, they lost it. That didn't bother them. Why? They were looking for something else that was much more permanent. They were looking for, as we'll see eventually in chapter 11, 11, and I alluded to this morning in Sunday school, they were looking for a city whose architect and builder is the Lord Almighty. They didn't care about how many cars they had in the driveway or how many horse carts they had in the driveway or that they had a nice boat or a six-bedroom house that was almost brand new. Those things didn't matter to them or even their own pride as they were publicly shamed. No, their joy was in Christ and in the hope that they were looking forward to. The apostle said, knowing that you have for yourselves, what? A better possession and a lasting one. They knew those things weren't going to last. How many ever have had a nice car and all of a sudden it breaks down on you? And many other things like that. Oh, we got a brand new house, but guess what? The roof's leaking. Those things didn't last, and they knew that. They understood that those things would not last. They were looking forward to the eternal inheritance they had from God. They were looking for the return of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were looking for the day he would judge all men, sending the wicked to hell and taking the righteous to be with him. Because of this hope, the things of this world mattered little to them. They endured their sufferings joyfully. Well, that was their previous love. That's what they were, but that's not where they are now. As he writes, something has happened. Something has changed, sadly, not for the good. As we keep reading here in verses 35 to 39, we find out in verse 35 their dangerous Position. What are they about to do? What does he tell them not to do? They were tired. They were weary. 
They'd endured this suffering, this persecution, these difficulties in this life. And now they were weary. Now they were saying, hey, you know what? It would be a lot easier if we just went back to our Judaism. Then people wouldn't bother us anymore. Let's just go back to the old system and forget this whole thing. Jesus hasn't showed up. Paul, you said he was coming. Where is he? We don't see him. What's going on? We've gone through all this for the Savior, but we don't see anything. They were about to throw off their faith. And he employs them, here in verse 35, not to give up and to lose that reward that God has promised them. And then he goes on in verses 36 and 37 here to give them a delicate rebuke. And see what he says here to them. First of all, he tells them there that they need to have endurance. He understands their struggles. Who better the Apostle Paul would? Who had been left for dead after he'd been stoned? Who had had to run from place to place for fear of his life after preaching the gospel? Paul understood. He got it. He knew what the struggle was. He understood the hardships, the physical and spiritual persecutions they'd undergone. However, that being the case, as I said, he encourages them to endure. He tells them if they continue to follow God and don't give up, they will receive what he's promised them. That Christ is coming soon. There in verse 37 we see it. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. And this does tie in a little bit with our Sunday school lesson. Where's Paul pointing them again? What are they supposed to be looking for? Christ's coming. It's the thing that they need to continue to look for. He will return. His promise is not an empty one, Paul is saying here, but a certain one. And the apostle said something similar to the Galatians when he told them in Galatians 6, 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So the the apostle here gives them a delicate rebuke. He tells them, You need to endure. Christ is coming. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel here. If you do that, that's going to be a disaster. Everything you have endured is going to be for nothing. Well, then we come in verses 38 and 39 to what I've called Paul's decisive declaration here. He makes a 
a statement. First of all, look at his reminder here in verse 38. What does he remind them of? And Brother David read it this morning from Romans chapter 1. And here Paul quotes it again in verse 38 from Habakkuk chapter 2. But my righteous one shall live, how? By faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Paul reminds the people that we as God's people live by faith. We don't live by sight. It's not what I see. It's what I know and believe. Paul says, don't forget that. You're forgetting that, people. Okay? You've gotten tired and now you've begun to go by what you see instead of what you know is true. Get back to living by faith. You've stopped living by faith. They needed to each day remind themselves to live by faith in the Son of God. And then he goes on to tell them if they do not, God will have no pleasure in them. It will be to their ruin. And then he concludes this context leading up to chapter 11 by giving them a brief resolution in 39, verse 39. And this is very interesting, what he says to the Hebrews. And I think when the Apostle Paul here is using we... He's not just talking about himself and his fellow laborers. I think he's also including here those he's writing to. When he says, we're not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. He declares here that what? That he and the Hebrew Christians are not among those who are going to fail. He's convinced that he himself and they as well, based on their past and what they've done, by the actions they've displayed, he was confident that they had endured what they did because they truly loved God. And they would. They must, but they would endure to the end but that they now needed to remember, to go back and remember how they had initially responded to that persecution and continue to live by faith in the Son of God. Now this morning we want to look at a few lessons we can get as we kind of come to this prelude, as it were, to chapter 11. And one of the things that stands out quite clearly, I think, in this passage is that God did not call us as Christians, as his people, to live a life of comfort and ease. If we 
have become Christians because we've done that, I'm sad to tell you this morning, that's not accurate. God has nowhere promised us as his people a life of comfort and ease. And sometimes, especially here in a land that's been blessed, maybe more than many in the history of mankind, not just currently, but in the history of mankind, we as God's people can forget that. We've got our nice homes that are warm in the winter, cool in the summer. We've got plenty of food on the table, clothes on our back, vehicles to transport us, and on and on we could go. And how easy is it not for us, brethren, to get caught up, or maybe more accurately, swallowed up by those comforts and ease and that ease? Is it not? Am I the only one that has that problem? I don't think so. I think it's very easy. We forget. We forget what the Savior told us in Luke 9, 23 and 24. If you want to turn back with me there a moment, Luke 9, 23 and 24. What did he tell us? And what did he tell the disciples when he was talking to to them? And in this context... They had come upon the Savior when he was praying by himself alone. And he was teaching them something. And this is what he was teaching them. Verse 23, and he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wishes to lose his, wishes, excuse me, to save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now that doesn't sound to me like a life of ease, health, wealth, and prosperity. That sounds like a life that's going to be a hard one. The last time I looked, bearing a cross was not an an enjoyable task, generally speaking. That was a difficult task. It was hard. And yet Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you have to take that up. It's not an option. It's not a nice thing to do. If you're going to be one of mine, you have to. You must. Now that cross is going to look obviously different for, depending on who we are and where we are in life. But yet, that's going to be what must take place. We have not been promised, brethren, that things are going to be easy. As a matter of fact, we're even told in Scripture at times, and we even see from these Hebrews, why another reason that they rejoiced was what? They knew they were suffering for Christ. This is what Jesus said was happening, and it's happening. Just like he said. And that was one reason they were happy about it. Hey, yeah, Paul said that was going to happen. He said we'd be persecuted. He said the world would turn on us. 
He said our Jewish brethren would persecute us, maybe even to the loss of our lives. That was going to happen. And yet sometimes, brethren, and I say this again, including myself, what do we do when a little persecution comes our way in whatever form it is? We have a tendency to bucket. We wonder what's wrong. Why are people treating us this way? Why are the guys at work not talking to me? You know, why are they kind of treating me like I'm not, like I'm an oddball? You know, why is this happening? Why are the neighbors kind of shunning us? Well, maybe. Maybe it's because you've made them known where, what you believe. Or they figured it out. Or maybe, why is it that some of your family wants nothing to do with you? Because every time you get together, you're not afraid to mention the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what great things he's done for you. Not beat them over the head with it, but you're not afraid to talk about it and mention it. And they want nothing to do with you. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to hear it. Does that mean there's something wrong with us? No. No, there's nothing wrong with us. Jesus said that's the way it's going to be. Brethren, it's going to be that way. Now, it doesn't mean we go looking for it. We try to make ourselves martyrs where Jesus has not. But it means it's going to happen. And we won't take time this morning, but if we went back to the book of Matthew, we would find out that one thing Jesus told his disciples is, in families especially, is one place it's going to happen. Jesus said, you know, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And he, what did he say in reference to that? That sword, I'm going to turn what? Fathers against their sons. Daughters against their mothers. Daughter-in-laws against their mother-in-laws. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, listen, brethren, don't be deceived. Because you become Christians, your whole family isn't going to roll over and, and be excited. Even your children won't necessarily become all Christians. Because I'm going to turn some against their parents. And the parents against the children. That's part of our cross. And one of the things the apostle is trying to tell them here, in reminding them, is this was part of what Jesus said. This is what's going to happen to us. We are going to suffer for the gospel if, he's, if we're one of his people. That will happen. But Paul didn't just leave them there, as we saw. He didn't just leave them to say, hey, this is what, that's what, this is normal, don't, you know, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. That's not where he left them at all. Do you notice how he took them back to when they were first Christians? Why did he do that? Well, you say he went back to show them how they were willing to suffer, yes. But there was something in that suffering that we saw. Not just the suffering itself. How did they respond to it? They were joyful. 
Now, if I were to ask you this morning, each of you, to turn the clock back to when you were first converted, was there any excitement about the gospel? Did you love the gospel? Did you love Christ? And I realize our personalities are different, so each of us would have responded to some extent differently. But there's a general excitement. There's a love for him, for his word, telling other people about him. What was Paul trying to do? Do you remember what you were? Have you lost? You've lost that. And I guess I would say, brethren, this morning, have some of us lost that? Is that joy, that excitement, has it kind of burned low? Because of this world and the way it's worn you down? Because of the ease and comfort we have? And we've just been lulled to sleep? Has that happened? Maybe we're not quite yet to the place of the Hebrew Christians. Maybe we're not quite ready to throw everything out. But we're kind of just low-key. We don't say much about the gospel like we used to. We don't go about telling our friends, our neighbors about Christ like we once did. We've kind of become indifferent. Has that happened? Have we lost our joy and our excitement? Do we need to be reminded again what great things God has done for us? How he plucked us up out of the mire and the muck and the mess to set us on the road that leads to life, to forgive us from our sins, to forgive us from a debt that we could never repay. Have we forgotten? Like the Hebrew Christians. May God help us not to forget, but to remember. May he revive our zeal and our joy for what he's done for us. But that's not the only thing the apostle reminds them of. He reminds them of a second thing. There, towards the end of chapter 10. And it's a thing that we talked about, again, and you're probably going to say, wow, Pastor Matt, Pastor Vincent, he's on a, he's on a real note here, and he's going to bring it home, isn't he, until we... But yeah, I kind of am, in a sense. But it's interesting, because you know everywhere you turn in Scripture, it pops up. And what is that? What am I talking about? What was he reminding them of here again? What did he remind them of there in verse 7? 37, excuse me, in verse 37. For yet in a very little while, what? He who is coming, who? Who is the he? Christ. Christ is coming. You say, well, you spent Sunday school talking about that. I did. Here it is again. And you know what, brethren? I could turn through the New Testament and it would just keep popping up everywhere we turn. Why? That's our hope. That's what it's all about. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. I don't get old anymore and have all the aches and pains that go with that. No crying. 
No more death. As I alluded to you this morning, I had to preach my friend's funeral recently. I won't be doing that anymore. No more preaching funerals, because there won't be any. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of looking forward to that. But we lose that, don't we? Do we let the things of this world kind of cloud that? Or do we forget? That's what God has promised us. That's one of the reasons Christ came to redeem us. Not just to forgive us for our sins and, and as one dear brother who I heard preached to give us some kind of fire insurance against hell. That's not all there was to this thing. No, no. But it's in the hope. What he's going to give us. And if we tried even, in the least way, wrap our minds around that, it would just be beyond what we could comprehend. If we were to go this morning to Revelation 21 and 22 and see what he talks about, that new heaven and the new earth, and say, you know what? I'm going to be there. I'm going there, and Jesus is going to be there. How much better could it be? It can't be. But that's our hope. And Paul told the Christians here, don't forget. You've got to hold on to that. Whatever it takes. And it might take some things. And we're going to talk about that in the second sermon some this morning. But it's going to take some things. Husbands and fathers, it's going to take some things on our part. Did you know that? We've got to step up. We've got to talk to our wives. And we've got to teach them. And encourage them. And remind them of that hope. We've got to remind our kids and teach them. What is it that Jesus is all about? Is it just dying on the cross and rising from the dead just so that nobody goes to hell? That's part of it, but that's not anywhere near all of it. There's a whole lot more. And I know a lot of you this morning have read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But one of the great things about that book is that when John Bunyan was writing about the Christian life, he always came back to that hope. That was what drove him and drove him to be in jail for seven years. And believe me, the jails then were not like the jails now. Not anywhere close. He could have stuck to being a tinker and he'd have been a whole lot better off physically. What made him do that? It was the hope that he had in the gospel. I'm going to get something that's a whole lot better than this stinking old jail and even being a tinker. I'm going to get a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus promised that for me and for all of his people. Paul's saying here, don't forget he's coming. He is going to judge the wicked. He is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. He is going to be the center of that new heaven and new earth. Brethren, may God help us to keep that hope in front of us. And some days, it's going to be all we can do to do that. Some days, it's going to take every bit of effort that we have, with God's help, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to to keep that in front of us, to remind us. Why, Why are we doing this? Why do some people here drive so far just to hear the gospel faithfully proclaimed? 
They got nothing better to do on a Sunday? I trust not. I trust it's because they believe that one day the Savior is going to break through the clouds. When it's least expected. And he's going to take us home to be with him. May God help all of us to remember that. And God use it to help us persevere in the way that leads to life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your love, for all you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for choosing us for who are we. We in no way have earned what you've done for us. We in no way deserve what you've done for us. And yet, in your love and mercy, you've reached down, plucked us, as it were, right out of the fiery pit, and set us on the road that leads to eternal life. We ask, help us to remember the hope that you've given us. Help us as your people not to forget. Help us not to be swallowed up by the things of this world. The blessings you've given us, especially here in this land that we live, and how good you've been to us. We ask as your people, I ask as one of your preachers, Revive us for your glory, for the glory of our Savior, in Jesus' name, amen.